Hello and welcome to episode, it is definitely number 63 of the Fitness Unfiltered podcast. With the usual bunch, it is I, Dan, and I am joined by Emma and Mike, as always. Mike, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Excellent. And Emma? I'm also fine, thank you. Perfectly on brand. We don't waste too much time and too much waffle here. Uh, we're joined by a very special guest to, tonight, and um, someone that I, I know, I think, probably a little bit better than the other two, but if I'll just introduce him... And that is Dr. Lauren Bannock. Welcome. Thank you for your time. We're most excited to have you here. Uh, we know quite a lot about you, Lauren. For someone that doesn't, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Oh, wow. That Just a little a, bit. That could be a podcast <laughs> in itself. All right. So I'll, I'll give you my, uh, my, my official blurb. So, yes, my name is uh, Dr. Laurent Bannock. And um, I am the, uh, the director of the Institute of Performance Nutrition. But essentially, I've been in the health and fitness industry in one form or another as a practitioner for nearly 30 years. I can't believe it. It's just just absolutely crazy. I should have more gray hair than I do, I, I, I reckon. Um, for about half of those 30 years, um, I was a personal trainer. Um, uh, that's how I started. Um, even had my own gym for a while. Uh, but did a, you know, did my did my service, earned my stripes as a personal trainer for a long time, and I did, you know, as a lot of people in personal training uh, will do, you know, I would explore different avenues within personal training or things that I could sort of add to my my practice, so to speak, as a trainer, which is how I got into nutrition, nutrition and sort of lifestyle management was clearly something that I found had an impact on my clients, even though I was lucky to train them, you know, two, three times a week. Um, you know, the fact that they would be drinking their bottle of, you know, whatever every night and eating their bars of chocolate and so on wouldn't compensate, you know, we couldn't compensate for that with the two or three training mm -hmm. sessions. So clearly nutrition became something that was highly impactful. The result of that was I just became much more interested in nutrition and lifestyle and so on. And that sort of took me down the path of exploring that a lot more. Um, and to cut a long story short, I ended up becoming more obsessed with the performance side of things. Um, and as well as, as well as that, I felt necessary to go back to school uh, about 12, 12 years ago now, 12, 13 years ago, and get some proper qualifications. Um, and I got, you know, like a master's degree in exercise science and master's in nutrition and blah, 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 to where I am now, where I got my doctorate in sport and exercise nutrition from Middlesex University, which is only a couple of years ago. So just for context, I'm 47. So for anyone out there that is a PT and they're wondering, you know, where they're at and where they can go, you know, you've got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, wow, <laughs> that is quite, quite a journey. Um, yeah. But where we got to know each other, Dan in particular, was um, um, about seven years ago now, I felt having done those degrees that I still didn't really know what I wanted to know. I'd learned a lot about science um, in my master's in exercise science and nutrition and so on, but I didn't really feel that I had the knowledge I needed to apply that into practice. And particularly when back then I was, I was already evolving from working with general population into working with elite athletes, um, you know, like boxers and UFC fighters and um, football teams and rugby teams and so on, which I started to do back then. I, I just didn't feel I had the knowledge that I needed. And that was why I developed the training and education programs that um, that you came on board with, where we got yeah, that's that's how we met. That's right. We yeah. got lots of experts over. You know, the, the 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 for me it was about well, you know, if I if I can't if I can't go to all these people around the world and learn from them, I'm going to try and get them to come to me, which was how that worked. We'd have all those amazing lecturers that you benefited from over the years, Dan. And that's also how I developed my podcast. You know, the great thing about these these podcasts is you can have amazing conversations with amazing people that you just ordinarily wouldn't have. And they all have wonderful learning opportunities, for, you know, for people that um, I think 
you know, is an underrated form of education, actually, just to focus on podcasts, you know, I think yeah, it, absolutely. it's an amazing thing. Um, but yeah, um, I've done a lot. Um, but for the last 15 years, I've, I've been involved almost exclusively in elite sport, having been at uh, two Olympics and um, with various Team GB teams. And then in the last couple of years, I was at the FIFA World Cup in Russia, which was just an absolute nuts experience. <laughs> Um, and even worked with several elite British military units as a performance nutritionist, which uh, hopefully is some, something we can talk about earlier is later today is my is my feeling that we use this term sports nutrition, but it's a bit inappropriate because per- yeah, that, that's, that's, I think I said to you, sorry to interrupt you. That's exactly how I wanted to start it actually, because I know you specifically don't refer to yourself as a, a sports nutritionist, but rather a, a performance nutritionist. And if you could let us know kind of how you distinguish between the two. I just think, look, at the end of the day, uh, as the doctor in the house, you know, will, will happily testify as look, you know, we're all human beings and we've all got issues that human beings can suffer from, whether it's, you know, physiological or psychological or whatever. So athletes are still human beings, but they have special characteristics to them, which, you know, can be very nuanced, actually, in terms of, you know, how we need to deal with them. But that that is the same for anyone that wants to perform and function because you know an important characteristic of as a human being is that we're not just vegetables we perform and function whether you know whether we're dancers whether we like going to the gym but we want serious results from going to the gym whether we're businessmen who are traveling around the world but need to have you know the the sort of the intellectual agility to deliver that presentation and that pitch at a completely different time zone at the other side of the world, you know, requires some resilience. Um, I mean, there's so many different people out there that don't fit quite, you know, quite the description of an athlete in how that term sort of makes us think. But when we broaden that to performance, boy, that's pretty much everyone in one way or the other. Mm. And that that is relevant, um, I think, and and is exciting for us as people who are interested in how nutrition can influence performance, whether it's influencing training adaptations or, you know, uh, supporting health um, and injury type scenarios, which is an inevitable byproduct of, mm. you know, doing a lot of training, a lot of exercise. Um, so for for us that are getting into nutrition, particularly you know, my area, performance nutrition, there's a huge amount of things that we can do. And every year that toolbox just keeps growing and growing and growing. Mm. Um, The problem, though, is is that it it is an enormously popular topic. Um, An awful lot of people like to think that they're nutritionists or have a perspective on that. And whilst for the most part you can do relatively little, if any, harm through making nutrition recommendations. Um, but in performance nutrition, what we're interested in is, is the outcomes. And you don't get gold medals, you don't win competitions, games, matches, or your physique competitions or whatever, if you're not, you know, if you're not running off the best possible information and you're not able to contextualize that and you know, make the right decisions at the right time so that those outcomes mm. are achieve so it is very much a you know an expertise based profession which is exciting um i'm not sure it yet has achieved the level of respect that maybe some other professions have like you know lawyers doctors that sort of thing but we're getting there it's a it's a pretty serious career path for people yeah because i mean given that unfortunately some of the general public tend to focus on that that minutia whether that be some sort of preconceived idea from what they've been exposed to or outright, or outright told, how much of that or what most health practitioners would deem as irrelevant to general population does hold some value in, in your opinion, with an athletic population? I know that sounds quite vague, but we often hear things like, you know, I mean, most gym members now, you walk into a gym and they're prompted to buy a sports drink or, you know, most people are to should are told to focus on specific macronutrients or nutrient timing or their gut health or supplements. You know, what, what, I guess, to summarise that, sorry, very long-winded question, 
with all of that that the general public focus on, what is more distinctly important for an athletic population? So you used a word that is my favourite word currently, and that's relevant, right? So if we get slightly technical for a second, when, when we're talking about evidence-based practice, the word evidence is something that's important. Um, and, and, and actually, my, my, I did my, my doctorate, was my research was in evidence-based practice in sport and exercise nutrition. Amazingly, no one's ever done that before. <laughs> okay. So, you know, it, it, but we've got evidence and people like to talk about things like the hierarchy of evidence and, you know, we differentiate anecdote from case studies to something like a randomized control trial, right? But what we're not asking ourselves is, is okay, we're, we're, we're able to have an argument about the quality, but we're not necessarily discussing the relevance of that information. And by that, I mean, it may be high quality science or bad science, but even if it's um, good quality science, it still might be irrelevant to the context at hand. That actually requires a fair amount of training and education to be able to make those decisions. So filtering, you know, the evidence that you find, which by the way, doesn't have to be scientific evidence. There's various kinds of evidence that will exist in your practice as a trainer or a nutritionist, which includes things like body composition tests, um, you know, looking at, um, you know, diet analysis, eating behaviors, you know, trying to get an idea of someone's likes and dislikes, their personal preferences. These are all factors that you have to filter into that process of determining whether something's relevant. So if I bring it back to your, the, the main point of what you asked is, you know, there's all this stuff that exists out there that's under this label of sports nutrition. So it could be sports drinks, could be ergogenic aids, strategies like, you know, nutrient timing, carbohydrate periodization and all this stuff. For the most part, there's some there's some degree of evidence in one form or another that exists behind these ideas and strategies and so on. But it doesn't mean that they're relevant to, you know, the, the population or the context of the individual, mm. you know, and this is a big problem because we have people who will read, you know, a perfectly dis decent scientific article, but they will have misunderstood where that information should be applied. So we see people in gyms, you know, with all their sports drinks and they're trying to lose weight. Um, and the reality is, is they're consuming more energy, more calories than they would ever expend in that workout. If you want to go even deeper into that, they're trying to do some sort of fat burning workout, but they're consuming sugar, which would actually, you know, prioritize the metabolism to use the sugar, the exogenous fuel, the, you know, the, the extra uh, sugar as a fuel at the expense of using their own body fat as a fuel. Mm. The point being is, is that it's got no place in that environment, um, whereas someone who might be going for, a, you know, a three hour sort of outdoor run, maybe you could have a different, you know, a different argument for that. So marketing takes advantage of the fact that this stuff is very difficult to interpret. So sort of the technical phraseology is, is, is the translational potential. So what is the translational potential of, of that research behind, say, sports drinks or a supplement, you know, BCAAs or beta alanine or whatever? is the translational blocks is where most people fall foul because what what looks like um, good quality evidence is misunderstood and misapplied so it becomes sciencey or dare i say bro science now what's interesting about bro science is a lot of stuff that we see as bro science probably had some science behind it at some point and then it ended up being disproven or it's just irrelevant in that particular context well, that you know, is the thing with myths, in theory it? it makes sense but in reality it doesn't i in studies done on rats it might might work but in human beings it doesn't yeah and and, and that's the thing isn't it because um 
we get caught up in, you know, we've spoken about it numerous times on the podcast, is that often claims of evidence-based doesn't necessarily mean that evidence base or weight of evidence is applicable to the population people are trying to translate that message for. So, And it, that's especially true in performance um, nutrition because probably 90% of the research, if not more, is done on male collegiate athletes or male college students. So you're really like, is that applicable? And also the sample sizes in comparison to what we would deem as like strong evidence in other areas of science is so small that a couple of outliers can really skew the results. So it is hard to interpret. And I don't know if you've got any tips about how to, how someone would look at, say you're a personal trainer who wants to be more evidence-based, but there is all that we're sort of saying, oh, it's quite hard to do that because there's these considerations. Is there any tips you can no, give? No, it's a great point. It's a really great point you made because, right, firstly, it's very difficult to do research on elite athletes because elite athletes don't have the time to come into the lab to come and do research with you. I guess right? they don't want guinea pigging either, you know, do they? <laughs> you, you, got, you imagine an elite marathon runner or an elite, if we can call them elite football players, <laughs> um, sticking needles, you know, big you know, massive needles puncturing their legs to get biopsies and so on is not something that A, want to volunteer for and B, are, you know, their agents are not going to let you near them. But the other thing, though, is is that you're absolutely right. What, a lot of times also what we've got is maybe an elite collegiate athlete is not the same thing as an elite Olympic athlete. It's two completely yeah. different things. And probably the, the most important thing you just said there is that um, outliers. The elite athletes tend to be the outliers, but when scientists publish research, what they're doing, all that data, all those different data points, they, they will publish the means, the average, if you like. And what happens is, is the outliers do not represent the average. So then you've got a big nasty mess of, you know, completely mis you know, misinterpretable, if that's a correct term, <laughs> information there. Um, as far as tips, I mean, you know, the, the the best way to learn to how to read a paper and understand science is to actually learn how to read and interpret science, which means you've got to go and get some education on this. My absolute bugbear on this is when people use the phrase, I'm evidence-based, I'm evidence-based practitioner. No, you if you have to say that, chances are you're not evidence-based because you don't even understand what the term means. You you have to be able to differentiate quality from flawed evidence, and then you've got to be able to um, learn how to translate that evidence into, um, into practice and determine, well, you have to go through something called contextualization, um, which then... You know, I mean, at the end of the day, that's a pretty tricky process that you're not really going to learn to do unless you've had some training. And, and by that, well, yeah, you might, like you guys, you might have to spend a hell of a lot of time working on your education. Mm. And I, I, I was going to ask you as well, your opinion, on does that claim become a little bit of white noise if everyone's screaming it? And for those that are looking, you know, potentially to work with a coach, what would they be looking for as in terms of pros and cons of, people and whether they know what they're talking about or they're just claiming evidence-based because that seems like a bit of a, a buzz phrase at the moment well it is it is a buzz phrase isn't it because it's a sexy phrase i'm evidence-based um i mean who doesn't want to be evidence-based but the the yeah i i mean look we've got okay wait i'll play i don't want to be evidence-based i think that usually the science is catching up with what coaches are doing yeah so actually coaches are ahead of the time and we're realizing now why for example hit training is beneficial as opposed to the science finding out that hit training is a better way of training and then coaches implementing that we coaches were already doing that we've just now got the evidence to support that and similar is true with your personal trainers like i would look for someone who has a lot more experience and who is open-minded to change their mind and who actively looks at research and discusses research but someone who's limited by evidence i don't think would be the best coach or trainer no you're absolutely right and 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 the reason why you're right is because practice is not the same thing as science 
practice includes science and a practitioner is someone who has to be a rational critical thinking individual who's able to um, make effective decisions but to be able to make an effective decision requires you yourself are trained and educated and i i don't like the word evidence-based but what i do like is the word evidence informed so to be an evidence-informed practitioner means that the evidence simply is a tool in your toolbox, but you've still got to know how to choose and differentiate between the tools in your toolbox. You need to know the strengths and limitations of the tools in your toolbox. And, and actually, when you look at science of expertise, what, they, what they've learned, like with you know surgeons, for example, uh, particularly in, in um, like battlefield conditions, you know, where um, uh, it, things are particularly difficult for, for surgeons, is that it's, it's knowing when not to do something. It's the ability to actually um, go, you know, maybe pause for thought about something rather than just jump in and use any old strategy, which we see in the practice of nutrition is coaches or nutritionists or whatever, you know, they read something and they just throw that at their clients. Like, for example, since body composition is one of the most popular areas that we see is people start throwing people into some sort of energy deficit, a calorie deficit, and it's a sort of one-size-fits-all approach where you'll typically see someone's just going to have their chicken and broccoli in a plastic box, and that's it. That's absolutely it. And then, um, you know, what we've not considered is 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 how do we actually know what their caloric requirements are because we just picked a number out of a table that's not necessarily their requirements but also um what about things like relative energy deficiency and what about you know the effects on their metabolism um you know as a result of this process so i think um sorry lauren can i interrupt you there for our listeners that aren't familiar with relative energy deficiency, can you talk us through that, please? Because we we have had Rini um, McGregor on before. I touched on it briefly. Um, so, but I know you've, you're doing some research. Can I divulge that in terms of specifically more men? Um, well, that's not so much. Uh, that's not so much me actually. Um, but th there, oh, there's been a lot of interest in. Um, relative energy deficiency um, in sport, which historically was a situation that, you know, was focused more on women. And one of the reasons for that is because th th this problem came about because female athletes, particularly females that would, you know, they'd be young females who would be undertaking huge amounts of exercise, um, and um, the impact of, of that exercise meant that their energy expenditure was so significant that it would have a number of negative effects on that individual to include sort of drastic weight loss. It would have negative impacts on adaptations to training, um, impact, negative impacts on menstrual function, um, and worse still, long-term possibly irreversible in negative impacts on bone and blah, blah, blah. And essentially what we have is a situation where someone is in an energy deficit for a very significant period of time. But this isn't only applicable to men. It is also, uh, sorry, women is also applicable to men, particularly combat athletes, um, you know, boxers, um, you know, MMA fighters making weight, um, ultra endurance athletes, uh, which is men and women, of course, but there's a, um, um, a whole area um, that we're now seeing that would include physique athletes, of course, which are people who are deliberately putting themselves into these energy deficiency situations. But yeah. we, you know, the, 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 without going too heavy into the science and energy availability, which is another topic that's related to this, which means we need to have enough energy available to support health and function in young athletes, growth and development, to support adaptations to training and so on. But um, I think a problem we've got in sports science, nutrition, you know, in the sciencey things is, is we're very reductionist in how we approach things, which includes our language 
we don't eat energy or, or macros or calories. We eat food. Mm. Um, and the, the matrix of food is so much more than its constituent parts. Um, and this is what's essential for health and maintenance um, in the body. And, and we should also point out that there's a lot of stuff in food, in that food matrix, that we haven't even identified yet. Um, so if all we do is focus on things like energy or protein or whatever, it is at the expense of those other items, um, yeah. which has become quite a serious problem, um, which we see in any situation where someone is getting people to do stuff where they really don't have enough knowledge, so they're ignorant, or worse still, which is the more common problem, is, is they're ignorant of their own ignorance. <laughs> yeah, we, see, we do see a lot of that. Yeah. So it's very thought-provoking, I know, but, you know, it is... It, I remember, look, when I was a PT, black and white days, I, I, yeah, I got into everything because I was enthusiastic and that's what I wanted to do. I absolutely loved, you know, particularly nutrition and I got into alternative medicine and all sorts of stuff. Why? Because I was enthusiastic and I loved doing this stuff and I was ignorant, <laughs> mm. you know, but we, we learn and we train and, and we get educated. And I think a piece of advice for everyone is, you know, something I teach all of my students um, you may remember me saying this, Dan, and I certainly mention this in my own podcast regularly, is is you, 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 you can do something, but it doesn't mean that you should. You must always yeah. stop and think about it. What's the bigger picture here? You know, am I really, do I really know what's going on here? You know, have a real thing. Am I really educated? Mm -hmm. You know, um, am I, I mean, God forbid, scope of practice. Yeah, well, the educational structure and scope of practice is something we're definitely going to come on to. But using your example there is, is very much that I find what we come across, especially when it comes to like just general population and weight loss quite often is, as you said, because you can, should you? Like you can lose body fat by having a tub of ice cream every single night, but because you can, should you? And it's looking at food at way more than just energy and macros. So that's definitely something I want to come to. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the postgraduate diploma in sport and exercise has evolved into the Institute of Performance Nutrition? Oh, uh, yeah, with our with our programme. Yeah, well, I mean... And just the where that sits in the educational structure in the UK at the moment in terms of nutritional education. The whole point of our programme is that it, it's not an alternative to say a master's degree or a degree or a nutrition coaching program they all have their relative places i mean our our course is will take someone about a year to do and there's over 900 hours of content that they get through lecture videos you know for example or, or webinars which are with the people that are conducting the science and the research so these aren't just these aren't just it's not just me it's not just you know, reading stuff. You are literally being taught, yes, by me and my team, who I'll mention in a second, but by the people conducting the research that, you know, you will read about. Um, and that's an important thing. Um, and, that, that, you know, this is all about taking your knowledge to that next levels to, to, to truly learn how to specialize in this particular area, sport and exercise nutrition which requires a vast amount of, of knowledge, really. I mean, you, you you know, you all are continuously developing yourselves. There's no end to that process. So that's what we, that's what we're about is a sort of a continual professional development process for people with their nutrition coaching certifications or their degrees in nutrition or dietetics or sports science. Ours is that next level. And it's very simple. If all you do is tick a box and get a certificate and then, uh, you know, so that you can call yourself certified or, you know, to, to get over your um, your feelings of, of being inadequate about doing nutrition coaching, but you don't have the credentials that you feel match, you know, the type of professional that you want to be, you know, that you need to you need to go beyond that, because at the end of the day, your clients, your customers, um, teams, individuals, athletes, just normal people, they are paying you for results mm. um, and they want the best possible results and they don't want to get ill or injured in the process. So it is in your best interest to be damn good 
at what you do, but you also need to know how to choose the right tools that I referred to in your proverbial toolbox to get the right job done. It, it, there is, I have, I mean, it is amazing how popular nutrition, nutrition coaching, sports nutrition has become. Yeah. In the last seven years since I've been involved as an educator, I have seen a lot of degrees, a lot of nutrition coaching certifications be, I mean, there are, there are like an exponential number of people getting into this, but what will differentiate someone from all those other people is someone who's actually really good at what they do, not because they say that they are or because they look good with their shirt off or whatever, you have to be able to get results. And that requires training and education. Yeah, because I mean, I know Emma, especially, I know Mike is as well. We're interested to know, especially because am I correct in thinking that the IOPN is associated or recognized by the AFN? So sorry for the listeners, that's the Association for Nutrition. So in the, so in, in the UK, our programs now recognized by Association for Nutrition and Sport and Exercise Nutrition Register and the British Dietetic Association, either as continuing education for, say, someone with a degree in nutrition who wants to become a specialist in sports nutrition and registered as such, or you can our course will also count as evidence towards a portfolio application to become a registered nutritionist, but that will require some other credentials, um, yep. you know, like a sports science degree or... Or, 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 or similar, um, um, you know, but the, the, the accredit, I feel the accreditation is important for another reason. And that's also, we're talking about being evidence-based practitioners, but who, who is certifying the quality of the evidence that you're teaching people? Because if it's just you saying, yeah, it's high quality because I said so, you know, it isn't the same thing as having a, a you know, respectable third-party organizations validating yeah. that the information that you are teaching your students that they're going to go out into the wider workforce or to general population to elite athletes you know and have the confidence to pass on that knowledge to people and if they get that wrong that's going to kill their careers their reputation mm -hmm. you know it's a very serious thing you 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 can get into this game and leave it just as quickly as you got into it yeah, um, I don't know what the stats are, but if I give you an example in sport and exercise science, this is just for people doing degrees in the UK alone. There are 30,000 plus graduates per year getting some sort of sports science related degree, whether and it could be even sports psychology or sports coaching or, you know, and a master's or, or whatever. But collectively, Every year, there's 30,000 graduates. Now, if we then looked at how many people were becoming personal trainers or nutrition coaches, I bet you that number is dwarfed. I don't mm. think, yeah. when I think about my sports science class, I don't think many people still work in, in sports. No, sports no. None, I, none are sports scientists. It's I think amazing, one is like a nutritionist. Yeah. And then I a few did physiotherapy, but it, yeah. there's. But I think as well, there's not many jobs in it. It's, and obviously, as you're saying, it's really competitive. So you need these extra courses to make you stand out. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to, sorry, Lauren, just because um, I feel like I've led you down that path. But some of, a lot of our listeners will be aware, but the Association for Nutrition are applying to be the, the leading regulating body of nutrition in the UK at the moment. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. If you could expand a bit further on what you consider the pros and cons of having one regulatory body for nutrition. Right. So uh, so I'm a registered nutritionist as well. So I've, I'm registered also with the British Dietetic Association as a sports nutritionist, but I'm also a registered nutritionist with the AFN. Uh, the first thing you've got to, to get, get straight on this is there's a misunderstanding about what this situation actually means. What they are regulating is the title registered nutritionist not people that are going to give basic nutrition advice where they are aware of their scope of practice and they're not delving into certain areas that would be um, more appropriate for clinical uh, dietitians or for registered nutritionists so people and the AFN I'm not speak I have nothing to do with them so I'm 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 just I'm aware of this topic as an educator as well so 
people like the AFN or the AFN specifically will certify um, nutrition courses um, up to level five, I think it is. Um, um, but it is also on the understanding that the people that achieve those certificates, which are typically the ones that personal trainers will achieve, are also going to understand the limits of what they can do with that knowledge. Um, yeah. Our course, for reference, by the way, is a level seven master's degree level, although you don't have to have a degree to get onto our course, but you do have to have pretty significant um, fitness and or nutrition certifications to get around that fact. But yeah, I, you know, there's no, the regulation situation is a complex one, but I don't think people should be afraid of getting into um, a career path as a nutrition coach in one way or the other, but you are going to have to be aware of the limits of what you can do. But why not work towards that? If you want to make a career for yourself as a nutritionist, um, then collect you know, qualifications and continuing professional development and relevant degrees, you know, if you can get onto them, um, which don't have to be nutrition. They could be like in obesity science. I think you, you did, didn't you, Emma? You, you've done something like that. Similar, yeah. You can do things like diabetes research. Yeah, it's all relevant though. There's so many masters now, probably because they make unis so much money. But that is another topic. Yeah, because I feel like what they've done with nutrition is what they were doing with S&C probably 10 years ago, is when S&C was first being spoken about, then every uni had an S&C master's. Yeah, it, look, but to go back to your central point, because, you know, I've got, we've got students in 67 countries, right? So I'm, I'm aware of more than just what happens in the UK, and it's a universal issue. The most important and critical thing is, is that you understand your scope of practice as someone who is giving someone nutritional advice. If it's remotely clinical, this, this, I'm, what I'm saying is what I believe in, but also um, what these bodies are trying to protect against. And that is, is people that have in, inappropriate levels of training and education that are getting into um, area, into dodgy water where they are giving advice to people that they just are not trained and educated to deal with, which basically is anything remotely clinical, okay? Mm -hmm. You just shouldn't be doing it. And, it. and it goes back to the, if you can, um, should you? No, there are huge, huge numbers of people you can help and support who don't need clinical help and support. And you can become exceptional at what you do as a nutrition coach or as a nutritionist, registered nutrition, registered dietitian and so on, as long as you understand the strengths and limits of your own knowledge and skills and skill sets and obviously be mindful of the legality of that situation. But fundamentally, if, if you don't know what you're doing and you're not, you're not absolutely sure about what you're doing, then don't do it. Mm. Well, that, that it does, sorry, I was gonna jump in. Like, it, when you say it like that, the line is so clear and I completely agree with what you're saying, but in reality, sometimes it's not that clear. For example, if I have a very overweight client and I'm unaware that they're diet, like they're technically type two diabetic now. Yeah. Do, do I then stop training them because they've sort of crossed this arbitrary blood glucose level? No. Or, but even though the exact same ridiculously basic principles of even just the advice of let's get you walking a bit more and let's get you eating a little bit less. And to do that, maybe we're going to cut some calories. Like, that's where I that's sort of the area that I'm a bit unsure of with this whole regulation that we're not turning people away that are being like I really want to work with you I want some help you know it, and we both know that if they go to their GP and they get sent to a dietitian, it could be months before they get seen and then it's one appointment it's not an ongoing thing and you raise a good point and look at the end of the day this is going to come down to a question of ethics your own ethical decision making. If it's not cut and dry, it might be best to ask. But in a scenario where you're presented with a client who has problems but doesn't know that they have those problems, if they have, if they're not diagnosed with a condition, then you're not you're not stepping outside of your boundaries. But if you suspect that that person has an issue, you should refer them back to their GP or or, um, or other type of, of medical professional to find out if there's a problem. And that's where 
scope of practice has to be a decision-making process. If you don't know, you need to find out mm -hmm. um, to protect your client, but also to protect yourself. But to go back to the original point of that is, absolutely, if you're giving evidence-based recommendations via an, a, a trained and educated evidence-informed approach, you're going to do nothing but good to that client. Um, but I think that comes back to the point that if you're giving nutrition advice to an individual, but you yourself aren't particularly well trained or educated in that, that's where there's a problem. It's, the, it's just really challenging, isn't it, to get people like the problem is people don't know what they don't know. Um, but I think that's a problem in almost every profession where and sort of so speaking as as a GP, I mean, GPs are, are no less guilty of this than, than anybody else. I've seen some GPs giving out shocking diet advice, and I include myself in, in, in that group of people. Um, and I think what's really difficult is that everyone thinks they're giving out great advice. And the problem is, if you there's so much to know, especially when it comes to those medical conditions, that if you do give out certain types of advice, that could be counterproductive. For that medical condition if you don't give any advice that could also be counterproductive for that medical condition because they might end up going to see a gp who's not particularly well versed in it either um and who just tells them to do something different which is just as useless and it, it is really it is genuinely really challenging and I, th I feel like if i wasn't a gp and didn't know the intricacies of what happened in general practice i would have this idea that oh well just get them to go and see their gp because their gp will know what to do um, but in reality, that's not always the case either. And, and I think that can be, um, I think, I think that's what, what we worry about is it, it, is that the, the advice isn't freely available from nutrition professionals. So yeah, if, it's if, an accessibility thing yeah, as well, isn't it? If you're a standard so person on the ground, to get in with your GP. yeah, you can get an appointment with your GP. You could probably maybe afford to have a couple of sessions with a PT who might have a nutrition background. But if you wanted to see a private, proper sort of nutritionist or dietitian, that's next level in terms of access, isn't it? And in terms of in terms of generally, like socioeconomically, whether people have, have actually got access to those professionals. So. My recommendation, which is what I did myself, and I built up a very successful personal training business and practice, um, you know, and this is a bit of sort of practice development and business advice um, that I can offer is that um, developing um, a solid referral network is a powerful way to both grow and develop your practice, but also, you know, reduce the level of risk within your practice. Mm -hmm. Because where there's an issue, you've got people you can talk to, you can refer to, and they will do the same back to you. If you get your practice to a certain level, you you will you should be in a scenario where you're able to filter your clients to the ones that you feel most confident to work with. Okay, I know it's difficult. For young practitioners just starting out, they'll take on any client because they've got bills to pay. I get that. I used to do that. And that's why I got into all sorts of stuff because I was trying to help my clients in any way that I could. But that also means that you're attracting the wrong types of clients. The clients are perceiving in you um, perhaps, you know, not specific enough, uh, a niche, if you like, in mm -hmm. terms of specialization. Because there are huge numbers of people that you can work with where you won't be presented with those risks. But I think if you learn how to filter the risks, you know, you should be doing an assessment on your clients, whether you're a PT and or a nutrition coach, to determine what their issues are, but also to determine whether or not you need to refer them. Mm. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it's difficult, I know. And, and people either won't tell you you know, um, something, or they tell you only what they think you want to hear. It's a tricky, tricky business that we're yeah. in. You know, you I, do need to have the mindset of protecting your client and yourself as best as possible. I think what I would like to potentially see more of is maybe a bit more collaborative working between different types of professionals. So rather than just sort of saying to patients, to, to patients, saying to clients, uh, go and see your GP, 
maybe ringing up the GP and saying, I'm a bit worried about this with this patient. Um, I've asked them to come and see you, but I'd love to have a chat about it with their consent, obviously. Um, and maybe I can just make sure that I don't give them any advice that would conflict with the type of advice that you would be giving them. And I think, you know, I would like to think that GPs would be open to that. Obviously, everyone's a bit different and everyone has different kind of levels of workload and priority and stuff. But I feel like that's something that has almost never happened to me. And I think I think I remember someone like a PT or somebody phoning me up once and me thinking, oh, this is amazing that, that actually they've taken this much of an interest in in this patient. And actually, if we if we work together a little bit more, then we might all also have a better awareness and understanding of each other's boundaries. I, I think it's a very good point. You know, the, the collaborative thing, though, can really work. Um, and in your collaborative referral network, you can have other specialists, um, whether it's physios or osteopaths or mm -hmm. chiropractors or physicians or, you know, count, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, counselors or uh, dietitians. Um, or sports nutritionists or whatever. I mean, in my practice, I specialize in certain in a number of areas, right? Um, and if an athlete wants to work with me um, and it's not within my area of speciality, I refer them to another sports nutritionist that that works for. And likewise, they send them back to me. And I have medical doctors, um, consultants, and so on that I refer my athletes to. Um, you know, for, for the numerous physical issues that they'll have uh, or sports medicine, you know, specialists um, or um, like somebody like Renee, for example, when you've got, you know, people that will have and, you know, you, you think, right, this person's got, you know, relative energy deficiency or, you know, they've got gut issues. You know, there are people that can specialize. Likewise, they'll send back to you. And I think you need to get over that fear of, oh, I'm going to turn this client away because they become very happy. They become very grateful, as does the practitioner that you referred to, and it will come back. I, I grew my practice off that basis, and I, I think it's well worth getting into. Yeah, I think, you know, keep bearing the client in mind as well or the, or the patient in mind is by not signposting them in, a, in another direction, you end up leaving them to their own devices, which they could actually end up getting worse advice from someone less qualified that are prepared to, you know, fake it till they make it, so to speak. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic, definitely. But also, Dan, if you try and fix something that you're not really able to fix, they might get broken and blame you for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you need to protect yourself as well. Yeah, it's not good. Um, it's not good, you know, um, um, but I think you have to resist the... The temptation to do that particularly if it is a financial need to have clients which yeah. we all go through you know um but it, it it yeah you can but should you that's my thought process yeah and with regards scope of practice and you know we know people operate outside their scope of practice at the moment if the afm were to become that regulating body do you think it's going to make any difference at all well, it's a no, not really. I mean, look, firstly, we've got issues generally in the nutrition field. We've got infighting between different regulatory bodies, if you like, or at least registrants. You've got, you know, nutritionists fighting with nutritional therapists, fighting with uh, dietitians, fighting with nutrition coaches, fighting with natural health practice, whatever. You know, firstly, we're just not getting on. So that, that's the reverse of a collaborative environment. Um, we have that diversity in our professional, you know, areas. Um, the regulation thing is largely going to boil down to if you're going to call yourself a nutritionist specifically, it's a gray area, but you can still do that. It's only registered nutritionist. Dietitian is unique because dietitian itself is a protected title that's right but calling yourself i don't recommend you call yourself a nutritionist if you're not actually qualified as one i think you want to be a little bit more accurate with the terminology of who and what you are which means you should think a bit more carefully about what it is you do and you know but also to be honest if you if you want to have a successful practice you need to be identified in my opinion more by your specialization abilities your niche if you like as opposed to just some sort of title um but you know I, I think we're getting i think people are getting unnecessarily worried unless of course they are 
practicing outside of you know an acceptable scope of practice and and doing stuff that um you know is pretty questionable i think maybe they're the ones that would worry the most yeah interesting i think that's probably quite a good spot to wrap up Mm. actually thank you so much can for your I, time can I just quickly tell my favourite story about Lawrence? go on so last year at Body Power um, who was it in fact I won't name names but it was someone at Pure Gym at the Pure Gym um, conference area they were like can you arrange a female <laughs> round table and they were like there's you who's speaking and there's one other girl Lauren <laughs> and I was like who's Lauren and they were like Lauren Bannett and I was like Sure. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> we was doing so you well. You could have been in there on the female round table. I should have just said nothing and been like, "Oh yeah, get her. She's great." <laughs> I get that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's typical, isn't it? Um, the other one, I, I I don't know where we can go with this podcast, but my surname is a Scottish. So it, my first name is Laurence French, right? My surname is is Bannock Scottish, right? But normally it's Lauren Bangkok. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a double shock to them, but uh, yeah, that's hilarious. This is also, this is the closest that we've had to having another Dr. Banner on the podcast. It's a, it's oh, that's yeah. quite close, yeah. The doc, doc's my favourite character. Yeah, well, I do, if I haven't eaten in a while, I do get green and... Yeah, same. We can relate. <laughs> And if uh, listeners want to find out a little bit more about you, about a little bit more about the IOPN, Lauren, where would they find you? And tell us a little bit more about your podcast as well. Yeah, my podcast. Yeah. So they basically, um, all they have to do is just go to www.theiopn.com or on social media at theiopn.com or just Google Laurent Bannock, L-A-U-R-E-N-T. B-A-N-N-O-C-K, you'll, you'll find me one way or the other. But I have a team, you know, I'm not just an individual. I have a team that works with me. Um, you know, we're all, you know, we're all more than just one person. And uh, I'm absolutely indebted to my team and, and the people that work with me and the people I collaborate with and people such as yourselves that, you know, are helping to educate people out there and um, inviting people like me to talk for a bit. You know, it, it's great. Are you guys um, going to be at Body Power again, by the way? Yes, yeah, we yes. are. World exclusive. Excellent. Not on the female roundtable. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that. I think we've got another 10 podcasts that could quite easily come out of that conversation alone, but we'll definitely have you back if you if you can spare us the time again. But um, Very grateful. As always, thank you for listening. Please do rate, share, subscribe, and all that jazz on itunes and wherever you get your podcasts from and this will be out this thursday which you will not hear about until thursday so i won't tell you that date but anyway (laughs) thank you for listening we're finishing in the usual fashion goodbye bye